Gaming MBS episode 136, Player Facing Die Rolls. Thank you for joining Gaming MBS. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. And uh, as you can no doubt tell by Sean's wonderful, peculiar, non-placeable accent, we've apparently hit a Patreon-level goal, haven't we, Sean? Yes, we have, Brett. And that goal was that you would do the whole episode or just the intro? (laughs) (laughs) Just asking. (laughs) That's right, Brett. (laughs) The whole episode, is it? I believe so. That's correct. That's lovely. So this yes. is the um, this is the accent for our listeners um, <clears throat> that Sean used in my Trail of Cthulhu game. That's right. That is uh, Professor Doctor Professor Head, which was rather interesting. Professor Cicero. Yes. <clears throat> so oh, yeah. this is one of those few times for the listeners who um, normally are sick of Brett taking uh, too much time airtime and talking too much. You'll probably be very grateful for my tendency to ramble by the end of this one. That's correct. <laughs> All right, so that was our first announcement, so to speak. Yes, we did indeed make a patron goal. And hey, as annoying as Sean's accent may be, I'll, I'll <laughs> no, seriously, though, it is really cool that <clears throat> we still have listeners, uh, new listeners, old listeners, and people who have, um, like what Sean and I do enough, that you're willing to help us, uh, help us monetarily. So basically what that does is that just helps Sean and I cover hosting costs when we need <clears throat> microphones, mixers, stuff like that, when we want to take care of those bills. That's pretty much what we uh, throw all that stuff at. And then, um, provided we end up with a little bit extra in the slush, then we have the uh, Raging Kegger at uh, GameholeCon that we did last year. So that was all, that's fun. So basically, that's what it goes to. Sean and I do not have the uh, Gaming BS y- yacht just yet, but uh, that's, that's a li- li- later stretch goal. But for now, anyway, short version, thank you all very much. It's really cool. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, we should get into announcements. Absolutely. What's the, what's the announcement there, Sean? Uh, Game Holcon 2017 registration is now open. Thank you, uh, Michael Drescher, for submitting an event for us and running under our banner. Yes. So as all, as I shouldn't say as always as we did last year, we want to keep the uh, keep the fire burning and keep it rolling forward. Um, if you want to submit a game at Game Holcon, we would love it if you would run under the Gaming NBS banner. That would be great. Um, I'm working with Alex Kammer along with uh, Sean to make sure we've got our table and hopefully some uh, the three little separate side tables as we had last year. That's the plan. So anyway, it would be really cool if you can run a game that you would do it under our banner. We would be eternally grateful to you. So very cool. Yes, and speaking of which, so GameholeCon is a gaming convention in November, first weekend of... Please get your ass to GameholeCon 2017. Visit GameholeCon.com for more information. Sign up for their newsletter. Get updates as they come about. Excellent. I think that's about it for announcements, man. Yeah, let's get into Random Encounter. Random Encounter. I think we've got a... uh, Let's see here. We have a voicemail from Eric Farmer. Let me pull that up quick. I think that's, is it Farmer? Oh, yeah, we got Eric and Eric, back-to-back voicemails. Holy cow. BS on your Learning New Games episode. Now, the way that Brett described learning games is kind of how we used to have to do it. We used to just drop a game in front of a player and say, hey, learn this game or don't, and have a bad time. 
right? But we don't have to do that anymore, nor should we have really had to do it in the first place. This way creates a lot of barriers for new players, uh, and especially people who don't learn by reading, which I think Sean talked about a little bit. Um, but not every gamer is a real gearhead and likes to get in and see how it all works just from the text, right? We need to see how it plays. So that goes to how we need to think about learning games as a game master or a facilitator, and then how we need to teach those games. Uh, because let's not fool ourselves, that person is going to have to teach the game to the rest of the table, and then they can expand that knowledge on their own if they want. So when you learn a game, you are unpacking what the designers kind of put in there. It's all packed together in a tight little space, right? And you're pulling out pieces at a time. So when you are learning a new game, you look at the game, and whether this is a, a player or a GM, but especially as a GM, you say, okay, well, what's this game about? Okay, great. How does this game make the players do that thing? Okay, so what's the smallest part of that that I can pull out? So it's usually the core mechanic. It's roll a d20 and add a number and try to hit a number. It's roll a bunch of six-sided dice and try to get uh, a bunch of sixes or whatever it is, right? So whatever the base thing is, right, we start at the very center of the bullseye of what the game is about and how it makes the system about that. And we start there. And then we work our way out concentrically. Okay, well, what? So now that we know the very basic atom of the game, then we go out. Okay, well, let's look at the characters. What what can the characters do? And then we learn that. Why do they do those things? We we roll that in there, and then we step out from the characters. Okay, so now that the characters can't. Now that we have a character, and it's starting to touch on things like combat, experience, um, and all of the other parts of the games. Right? Then we know. Uh, what are the next things that we need to learn, right? What are the parts that the players are going to touch? And that's what we need to first learn as a game master. We don't need to worry oh. about the sailing rules or all of the magic or all of the feats. We just need to know where to start. So we learn concentrically, okay? And we start at the smallest part, and then we work our way out, and we especially focus on what are we going to see when we first start playing, Right? We don't necessarily need, and I'm going to contradict Brett here, to read the whole book cover to cover. Because there's no reason to read ninth level spells when you're starting at first level. It just You just don't need to know that stuff. You don't need to know about the turning radius of dragons in flight, right? Uh, or any of those other minutiae when you're first just starting to play. When you are teaching a game... You're doing this process uh, for and with your players. So you're taking this, this experience of learning the game concentrically, and you are passing it on to your players. And you say, okay, players, this is what the game is about. This is basically how the game is about that thing. We're going to make some characters. We're going to see how these different systems interact a little bit, right? But we're not going to get too far into it. And then... We're just going to start, and we're going to start in a spirit of learning, right? If we make a mistake, we'll go back, we'll fix it later. We'll check the books if we need to. And that way, nobody has to feel uncomfortable about not knowing what they're doing, because you don't know what you're doing. Nobody, there's no way you could learn a book and run it correctly from memory the first time. That's just nonsense, and that is a 
a thing that we need to take off of GM's shoulders, right? Or facilitator's shoulders. There's no, nobody expects you, nor should anyone expect you to know everything about the game. So we're teaching the game concentrically. We say, okay, we're starting here. We're making characters. When you start doing an adventure, then you are also doing the adventure somewhat concentrically. So we are learning as we're playing. Okay, well, now we know how to roll initiative. Great. So let's do that. Let's do the combat turn. Let's see how those work. And we step through each piece, piece by piece. And there's no expectation that we all need to know how every single piece works. The players really only need to know how their characters work. The GM needs to know how the game world interfaces with the characters. And that's about it for quite a long time. And then when you're done with your session, you can go back as the GM or as a player and go, hmm, that was a little bit weird. I didn't feel like I knew this particular system very well. I tried to grapple and it was real squidgy, and I don't know if that is the actual way that the rules worked or whether that was just what we were doing in the game. We go back and we learn them, right? between sessions and every once in a while come back reacquaint yourself with the rules and go oh yeah that's what that rule says and now because it's in context i know why it says that thing so teaching games learning games it's all kind of the same process and it's really important to not put barriers in front of gms or in front of players so that's just me calling bs thanks guys Love the show. Okay, he's finally done. Uh, he said in the middle of the email <laughs> that it was going to be a gap. I didn't realize it. Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, very insightful. No, that was really good. And Eric, you're right. Um, as I said, that last episode, I don't think I or Sean, especially me, uh, did as good a job as we probably could have or should have. I look back on it, the idea of read the book, I mean... <clears throat> Is that word for word? No. What I do when I read it, um, I usually read a game book two to three times before I actually run it. And oftentimes the first time is skim through, grab the big parts, like, okay, I think I get the gist of this thing, then go back through. Again, that's that's how Brett reads and how Brett learns from books. And again, not everybody learns that way. So I guess what you're seeing, Eric, is a hell of a lot better um, than what I tried to say. So thank you very, very much, sir. Uh, yeah, I think you hit uh, multiple nails on the heads, and I am uh, welcome to... Uh, Eat the necessary crow for a uh, poor description last time. So thank you, Eric. Our friends, very articulate. Very, very, very. Which is which is why we like having uh, listeners weigh in on stuff. Because as I've said many times, the ladies and men who listen to us, um, you guys have some really good and much. Uh, you guys have just as much, if not more, hands-on experience than Sean and I do. So hey, your opinions are equally valid, and we want to hear them. Now, I should mention, if you call in voicemail, it is three minutes long. That is your limit. Eric happened to record himself and send it in via email, so it was a little longer. I just want to make sure I put that out there because some people were getting caught off on the voicemail, and that's uh, the reason. Yes, because it does normally take a person a good three minutes to berate Sean and I at the appropriate level and volume. So I... (laughs) But anyway, yes, that that is a good point. Um, So anyway, I think we got another one uh, from... Another one, another Eric doubling. Double Eric from the Farmer to the Frank House. Lay it on me, brother. All right. Hey, Brett and Sean, this is Eric Frank House. I am calling about the Cypher System episode and your latest episode in reply to the not having dice. 
So I've run a ton of games over the years. I GM. I gosh, I don't. I think I play maybe twice a year. And the idea behind cipher system and not having dice is actually pretty awesome. It's very different than normal. I come from that first edition, second edition, three zero, you know, Pathfinder background where dice for everything. And while I do agree with who I believe is Ace that you know I want to roll dice too, there are ways in cipher to roll dice. There are alternate rules that you can add in if you want, if you want to roll dice. The easiest way to do that is to make an NPC and make one just like a character does and run that alongside the characters, just like you would in any campaign. That allows you to roll dice more frequently. Now, I will say it was odd the first two times for not rolling dice, but they give the GM a new mechanic called GM Intrusions. Intrusions provide XP, and they also provide a way for you to interject what you want into the story and to make players think on the fly while rewarding them, or they can give you a piece of experience from their pool and say, no, that doesn't happen. We stop it by doing this. So there are things in there that you get to do uh, to, to kind of add a randomness back in, but if you want to roll dice, you're welcome to. You can. There's ways that you can roll dice to attack in that game. They say not do it in all the optional rules. But I think the thing that has happened over the years especially since the 3-5 wave of, of bloat and everybody creating it has happened, as they've tried to free the GM from having to memorize a million rules. So I guess my favorite example for that right now would be Shadows of the Demon Lord. Very easy system. Complex in a simple way and understandable. And I think that you always hear about indie games being the way to play and really a lot of our our more mainstream, larger publishers are now coming through with cleaner rules and simplified rules versus the old days of Rollmaster, 3-5, and, and so on. So I get Ace's, you know, conundrum about not having dice to roll, but I can tell you that every system has rules to do it. It's just up to you if you want to apply them. Cypher system, if you roll, that's on you as GM if you really need to roll some dice. Um, oh, yeah, and there's also, also, anytime you randomly generate ciphers and artifacts or oddities in Numenera, which is a, a cipher, cipher system setting, the main one, you can always roll for that stuff, too, which gives you that random table kind of feel. Now, Eric happened to, it actually cut off, so I apologize for that. No, that's a, so Eric, I mean, Frank House runs a lot of stuff. He and every time I bump into Eric at a con, this last Gary con, I didn't get a chance to sit down and, and uh, bullshit with him like I normally do. But we've talked about multiple different systems over the last few years that he and I have had a chance to interact between Gen Con, Game Hole, and Gary Con. Um, um, his point's valid, though. I mean, you can pretty much, much like you, even as something as simple as, hey, make yourself an NPC and, um, you know, act out the NPC much the same, use the use the dice type of thing. That's totally valid. And it's not that you have to house rule things, but there's definitely, there are bits and pieces within almost any game system where you can add, if there's a randomizer, you can add some of that randomizer work over to the game master as opposed to just the players if you want to. That's a good point. Yes, very good points, both Eric's. Thank you for calling in. Uh, Brett, you want to read Jared Rasher? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Jared Rasher uh, wrote in on GMs rolling dice. Uh, this is on Google Plus. Actually, fairly hot off the presses as of today when we're recording this, which is April 16th. Anyway, Jared says, bear with me. I have some thoughts on the GMs don't roll dice thing that was discussed a bit last show. No, that's not something I would say should be the case for every game out there, and I don't think any of the game design surrounding it has, at its heart, the idea that no game should have the GM rolling dice. I've read a lot of Cypher, excuse me, but I've not been able to play it. I've run a whole lot of Powered by the Apocalypse. Because I've been curious about this trend, I've tried playing D&D according to the optional Unearthed Arcana rules for players rolling all the dice recently as well. Sean, did you even know that was a thing? I had no idea that was a thing. Was a thing? The whole Unearthed Arcana option for players roll all dice. Did you know about that? No, I I don't keep up with the uh, the articles from Unearthed Arcana. All right, so fine, we're both slacking there. All right, um, I have to admit, says Jared, continuing on, it's only been one session, but it's not doing much for me in D&D. It feels kind of awkward. It's only been one session, but from my point of view, it's not the optimal way for dealing with dice in D&D. So why does it work for Powered by the Apocalypse games and Cypher system? I think it's because both of those systems put a lot of power in the hands of the GM to radically alter the narrative of the game. Because the GM has a lot of power to declare things without the same kind of quote-unquote structure that games like D&D might imply. All the dice rolling resides with the PCs. Because good or bad, there isn't anything outside of the results. They roll on their own dice. To elaborate, if you roll a 6 minus in Powered by the Apocalypse, the GM can do all kinds of uh, things to complicate the players' lives. It's super open-ended. It's usually just not limited to, quote, you take damage, unquote, or, quote, you are disarmed, unquote. It could be any kind of a complication that makes sense for the kind of story you're telling. The same is true for natural one GM intrusion and cipher system. Because it's very open-ended, not only does it help the GM slash player trust structure to know that the PCs own their six minus or one, depending on the game, but also means the GM is doing less math, so you have more brain power freed up to think of something new and interesting. Um, none of this means that unexpected things can't happen in a game like D&D. But for the most part, there's an expected range of things based on reality, as is presented, that is likely to happen, as generally described by the rules. For example, in D&D, if someone disrupts a wizard spell, the spell doesn't go off. It's defined in the rules. In a part of the Apocalypse game, if a character is casting a spell to do something and rolls a 6-, minus, that means they didn't get what they wanted as a result, and the GM gets to make a hard move. Uh, that can mean they failed to the, cast a spell, miscast it, cast a spell but hit another target. could be sent out of vision from the Lords of Necessity showing them that everyone they love will die in a month's time if they cast the spell exactly as they intended due to complicated cascade of events, or anything else the GM thinks of at that point. Neither of these approaches is better or worse, but the play, but they play into how the game rules attempt to get to get the game to develop. And I think Jared, um, sorry, has uh, really good points there. It's basically, I mean, it's the type of what kind of what kind of play is the game trying to uh, create? And it actually touches again back on what Mr. Frankhouse just said, what Eric Frankhouse said, and even I would say back to Eric Farmer's initial voicemail to us about learning a game, figuring out what it is that the game is trying to accomplish. What's the feat? What's the uh, the feel? Excuse me. If you're playing Shadows of the Demon Lord or you're playing Marvel superheroes, two different games, not only just setting and so on, but the, the overall feel and everything to it. So understanding that um, then helps you comprehend why the rule would be built to facilitate that type of play. Sean, what do you, you got anything on that, man? No, well, I think we're going to cover it later. That's the plan. Next one is uh, up to you, sir. You read. Greening Gaming Ronin goes back to player-facing die rolls from episode 135. 
listening to the part where the person that wrote in about the players only rolling dice. I only The only problem I see with any of it is he is citing, it is he is citing the idea that it's there to fix things, things he doesn't see as a problem. And in many games, like the Cypher system, I don't think it is. It's not saying all other ways are flawed and should not be played. It says this technique is good for the kind of narrative-heavy games the Cypher system was meant to handle. It's a system that matches the style of game that the system hopes to emulate, not fix this flaw inherent to all other dice techniques. Yep, that kind of uh, uh, Ronan there pretty much kind of sums up the <laughs> everything we just said pretty nicely. That's good stuff. Uh, Tom Tom Bagwell commented on G Plus about learning a new game. I enjoyed the episode. I agree that reading books is ideal, but if I get the players to just read through the player section and mechanics, I'm satisfied. I've come up with another option that helps players and me. One, before creating characters, I'll prepare a character creation guide. Includes the necessary steps and options for creating a character with page number references. That's pretty damn handy. I also prepare a rule summary. This includes a mechanical basis necessary for combat, skill usage, etc. Any common options that tend to come up in games will be included. Again, I include page number references. Finally, I prepare a setting summary. This hits the highlights of uh, what the characters need to know. If I uh, know the types of characters are under consideration, I slant into that accordingly. This usually results in a few pages of information much easier to absorb than several chapters. If you want to read more, by all means, I encourage it. This also helps me. It may uh, it helps me cement my understanding of the rules and uh, setting and rules and setting by forcing me to select, summarize, and write it all down. Also acts as a quick reference guide in the future. I think Tom pretty much hit on something that um you were you were hitting me with last episode. Eric Farmer smacked me with again. Is not everybody learns the same way. And this is a method that Tom has to not only help teach other people, but through the I read it, I write it down, I teach, <clears throat> cements it in Tom's head. If that's a method that you do or that might help you learn and um, then cement things in your head and then be able to pass it on to the players, that's, that's not a bad idea. I like that idea. It's good stuff. It is a lot of work, it sounds like, Mr. Bagwell. Well, I'll tell you, though, if you get a PDF copy of a game – excuse me, like a lot of games have, being able to uh, cut and paste out of PDFs and so forth can make it a little bit easier. Still legwork involved, as you say, but not quite as bad. That's very good. True. True statement. All right. Let's uh, thank you for everybody writing into Random Encounter. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good stuff. Let's get into the main topic as Brett finds his breath. Okay, Brett, you're up, buddy. What are we talking about tonight? Well, I want to talk a little bit, a little bit about player-facing die rolls, what they are, what we like, and what we might not like about them. We've uh, already kind of, not, I shouldn't say we, but our listeners have already alluded to some of the really good spots around it. And I think one of the interesting things is that, as a number of the listeners who wrote in, uh, Ronan said it, and um, Rasher, and Eric Frankhouse, and so on, it's not... The idea is not that every game is broken and this is the magic bullet that will solve all our ills. But so essentially a player facing die roll is I see us defining these, Sean, is basically anytime the players roll the dice to determine any outcome in the game. 
You're like, hey, roll to do this, roll to do that. You look at the player and say, roll the dice. Or they know it's their turn to roll the hit, they pick up that die. Or it's their turn to dodge, they roll their dodge pool or whatever it happens to be. Anytime the dice from the player's hands, that's what we're talking about. So, Sean, a thing that I really like about them, and I guess one of the things that really makes me kind of enamored with the um, newer systems or the ones that, like Cypher, that have more player-facing dice, even like in Gumshoe, has mo- mostly player-facing die rolls, is because when I roll to hit you and or I roll to do something against you or I roll for the outcome, it doesn't have the same really cool, at least I don't get the same really cool reaction out of my players as when they roll it themselves. So if they're the ones rolling to, all right, you got to make um, make this climb check. You're being chased by rabid dogs, and there's a pack of orcs behind you. Make this climbing check to get up this rope ladder uh, quickly without falling off. Um, what do I have to get? Just All right, you got a DC of 16. See if you can do it. Shake a shake a chunk to hit the table, and they get a 14. Even after all their bonuses, they oh, my God, I failed. Ah, crap. Oh, my dice hate me. Now, credit if you're me and your dice consistently hate you, you tend to fall off a rope ladders more often. But there's something really cool about putting the fate in the player's hands versus always, I shouldn't say always, but versus having it in the game master's hands in critical situations like that, where it's kind of that do or die type of feeling or or big successes and failures. That's one of the things I really like about them. Sean, do you, is that something that trips your trigger or do you think it doesn't matter to you? No, it's good. I think it's good stuff uh, because it, uh, it it's creates this suspense a little bit. It seems as though it's in their hands and they can come out either ahead or fail miserably based on their own twist of the wrist, shall we say? Yeah, that's kind of <clears throat> that's kind of a neat thing, right? I mean, you can have your random charts or whatever that the game master rolls on, but I think when it comes to some of the really cool moments. Um, when the players need to roll to figure something out, even if it's a simple mechanics check to see if you can get that damn plane working or whatever it is, having the players do the die rolling <coughs> in those cases is a lot more, at least for me as a game master, much more entertaining. Um, I think what gets weird is when it comes to combat, really. I, I think, is and this is maybe just my, my piece, and perhaps listeners will t- correct me as they are want to do, um, but when it comes to combat, instead of me rolling to hit you or me to do something to you, I effectively say, this is what's going to happen to you unless you make a roll. And if it's climbing a rope or a rope ladder or, you know, do, doing that example, like, well, it is my climbing skill. I'll see, what hap- I'll, I'll see what I can do. But for some reason, when it translates into combat, it does become harder for some folks to swallow. And even I... When I roll um, a, a thing that um, Gumshoe has, I'm still rolling to hit you as the bad guys. So there is, um, I, I could turn it around, have it be entirely player facing, but there's something about that where if I were to say, hey, I'm going to punch you as a you know, my, my, the NPC is going to smack you with this club, roll to see if you get away from him, is, has a really different feeling than especially the traditional games or the traditional approach that we've had. So I think that is where a lot of angst or anxiety around player-facing die rolls comes in. 
least in my experience, I've talked about it with people in the past, and I've not been able to talk to Ace and other folks in person to have a more in-depth, you know, why why don't you like it or what specifically don't you like. But it feels that combat is kind of the root, in my opinion, of where people fall on the, eh, I don't want to have to roll my own dice. I want the, the DM to do it. Or the DM GM is always like, well, I don't like giving that to the players. I want to be able to have that in my hands. So do you have any feeling one way or the other, Sean? Do you like or do you care when you're game mastering or as a I let's let's do it like this. As a player, would you prefer to roll like in a cipher type of game, or would you prefer to have the dungeon master in the old D D style roll to hit you? What would you prefer? It depends on the game, Brett. I don't have a problem either way, honestly. I could go, you know, if it's cipher, then I think it's the way the game is meant to be. So you don't although, you don't have a preference, you just roll with whatever the game is. You really don't care. Typically, yes. But I mean what we could be talking about is if you're a game master and you want to roll a random encounter and you say, hey, you, give me a roll, buddy. Hey, Brettster, give me a, give me a roll, hot shot. And then, then you reference the uh, random encounter table when it might be, you know, you could have players rolling all the dice, even in old D&D. Yeah, you could. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess that's that's interesting though to me that you don't. If I said, "Hey, I was going to play Cipher, I was going to play GURPS, whatever," you'd be like, "Okay, how does this game work? You're just going to get into it. You really don't. That really doesn't bother you, one way or the other. Whether I roll or yeah. the GM rolls, you don't have a preference. You don't. You wouldn't sit back and say, "I prefer this type of game." I would like to roll in certain games. I mean, that's kind of the. I think if we're talking about players, I think you got to let the players do their do their thing. Players love to roll dice. If I'm game master, eh, I could give a shit. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I could go either way, really. It's not a big deal. Like I don't feel compelled as game master to roll every single die. Although I think that there are times when the game master may want to, because you know, it's the inevitable trap search or the detection or the perception, or if they find something and they're not sure, you know, if they roll, then they know. But if GM rolls, then they don't know if they stumbled across something or not. So the potential downside or negative component would be that if when the players are the ones rolling the dice, um, this is kind of the roll in the open type of thing almost as well, too. right? Because if you're a right. game master and all of your dice rolls are always in the open and you say, okay, I've got my, I've done my homework. I have a list of the rogue or the thief's um, skill, checks ability. Yeah, great. Um you know, Susan's going to give it a shot. I pull my D my D 20 out and I roll it open on the table and I say, Oh, you find a trap. Oh, nope, nothing. Nothing's found. You thinks everything's fine. And then the fighter goes in and falls in a hole. Or do I give that to the player? And then Susan rolls those herself and then says, well, I, I rolled really high. Don't I find anything? You know, that, right. or, or, or I failed. So clearly there's a trap or whatever the case is. So, in the, yeah, I rolled a thirty. There must not be anything there. It's all clear. Clearly, eh, that's kind of bullshit. So that's something we didn't <laughs> ask. Um, we didn't ask Darcy or Troy. But I'm curious for the people who play Cipher or other heavy player facing systems. What do you do? And maybe that's just the type. And maybe this goes all the way back to the top of the show when people are like, look, it's the type of gameplay that's supposed to be there. So if you to take, if you were to take D and D. As we talked about, apparently there's an unearthed arcana component where the players are all the dice. Um, 
And Jared was talking about this. Maybe D&D isn't necessarily the right game for it because at its core, that's not the type of game, the type of story, the type of emulation, the type of whatever that it's trying to accomplish. Now, if you don't, if you really like that type of story emulation, blah, 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 reference structure, whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah, I could see where saying, hey, this uh, newfangled or this alternate option of players roll the dice isn't isn't going to be in your wheelhouse because that's not a type of emulation that you're really hip on. I th- that makes sense. Right. Well, in, in addition to the perception piece, you you have players roll like the old Frank Bensler kind of method where he says, you roll, but I roll whether it's beneficial that it be higher or lower. So that if you roll a 30, you still don't know whether you're good or bad. Yeah, okay. So in... Depending on, again, I think this goes, I keep going back to this now, is if the type of game you've got is where there are secrets, there's things, that style of play like you just described, that classic D&D style, where there's things that the players need to uncover, and if they don't, it could punish them in some way, loss of hit points, monsters, traps, blah, 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 curses, and so on. Um, Yeah, you kind of, you can't, not can't, it just doesn't feel as natural to give all the dice to the other side of the screen. But a narrative-heavy system like Cypher, or um, I've played a little Dungeon World with Chris Nizak. I know you've played um, Power by Apocalypse games, I believe, before. And I know playing Gumshoe and stuff. Um, putting those type of games, which are more about finding out cool things, investigation, digging into stuff, having a very narrative experience. When you're having a very narrative heavy um and i guess like you can't have good narration in a, in a traditional DD or a gerpsy or whatever or rollmaster i've played all those with nice narration but when the narration mechanics are built into the game system then it doesn't really matter so much because there's then mechanical ways for the game master to say no i still get to flex my gm muscle here and say no this bad thing happens to you oh you did that hard move time Oh, this happened. Well, you can either do this and you know you can succeed, but I'm going to shred your armor in the process, or you can succeed, but you'll get your arm broken, or whatever. So, Sean, now I know you say you really don't care one way or the other, but if I were to say, and if you were, if you had your choice, maybe maybe I'm going to push on you here a little bit. If we're going to say, hey, we could play this this traditional D and D style game, or um, a cipher system. Same same setting where I play Forgotten Realms, blah blah blah. But I wanted to I want to use a cipher system for it versus D and D. Does one of those seem more interesting to you? I think if you run cipher system and the base of cipher system is to have player roll many of things and GM does not, then I think you roll with you roll with the game system that is. If you play D and D is the default game system and it's a D and D game, then you play towards those rules. And have it kind of fall where it may. I don't, I'm not a big fan of saying, well, you know, because powered by the apocalypse, you roll and players roll all the dice. And since we're playing D&D, I'd rather try that and make that roll and, and try to fit like a square peg into a round hole. You can certainly do it. There's no objection to it, but it's just not my uh, preference. I just can't pin you down on that. There's no way you're you're not going to make a choice on me. You're, you're not. No, gonna... my choice is I go with the system. If system says player rolls, hey, player rolls. If system says GM rolls, 
Jay, GM rolls. So if I were to say, hey, we're going to play Forgotten Realms. Yes. Either D&D or Cypher. Ah, setting, right? Okay, Forgotten Realms, setting. Either D&D or Cypher, which do you want? Hmm, good question. Mm, depends on which way wind blows that day. <laughs> you son of a bitch. All right. It's a hard one. I could go either way. I mean, I guess I go, I'm easy going. My wife, you know, she drives me crazy because we make want to make, you know, choices. I say, where do you want to go to eat? She's like, I don't care. What about you? I'm not picky. Yeah, this is why let's, this is why when Sean and, on the let's ask man on the corner. This is why Sean and Brett go on motorcycle rides. Brett leads, Sean follows, because it's much easier to actually get somewhere. Well, Brett knows where he's going. I don't know the freaking <laughs> eastern Wisconsin like riverbed valley. I don't know any of the roads. I'd get completely lost. Eh, well, okay. Which is not bad. That's okay. But I do think, um, <laughs> to go back to the the system perspective. I think there was a there was a piece there that um, Rasher mentioned, and uh, Frank House touched on, and Ronin, and and so on. It's that it's not I'm not fixing a flaw that's inherent to other dice techniques. It's a different style of play, and it is kind of <clears throat> there is a weird thing in Chris Nizek and I were talking about this a while back. I should say last year when, when we were at QCC together. Um, how some people have like this one true way. Like, oh, if you're gaming this way, and we've talked about this on the show before, if you're using this system, oh my God, why would you ever play like that? Oh, there's better mechanics for that. Oh, there's better technology for that in gaming. Blah, blah, blah. I, 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 like I said, I know guys that still like first and second edition Rollmaster. They love that game. That is their game of choice for fantasy. That's always been their preference. Um, are there quote unquote better games? Well, better for you, perhaps, but not necessarily better for the other person. I think the idea. I think what happens in some things is when you do square peg round hole it, as you said, and that's where Rasher was talking about for him playing D and D with the, um, with this, uh, with the idea of um, handing uh, uh, all the dice over to the players would just, it feels awkward. It doesn't feel like a good D and D game. It doesn't feel like that. And so on. Maybe that's just his perspective. We haven't talked to the players or whatever in the group, but it's not fixing a problem with D and D. It's just saying, "Hey, here's a different way you could do it. Maybe this is more your style." So, I, I think that, and this is one of the reasons why we buy multiple game systems. We want to have different experiences. We're like, "Hey, you know, I've had enough of Power of the, by the Apocalypse. I'm really up to my eyeballs, and I really like to try something different." Which is why I um I was running D and D five e and Osric, and uh, variations on that theme for a while. And I said, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to play some DCC. It's very D&D-esque, but it has its own mechanical components of it and makes it a different experience playing DCC than even Lamentation of Flame Princess, which I'm also running. This has, again, a slightly different feel to it based on the mechanics. So, hmm. I think the major downside then is that if you end up in a very heavy player facing direwolf game like a cipher where it's all on your hands and then you either you may need to find a way to how do i say this i think your the buy in might take longer perhaps that's a downside if you're going from one system where there's a lot of both sides of the of the gm screen have lots of die rolling and you flip there is potential either buy in time or whatever the the group and you need to get into it and you can't just do it I ran one. I ran one or two sessions, and then boy, that really bombed. I think you have to really give it a go, 
a serious attempt to see if you're gonna if you're really gonna get into it. Do you agree with me, Sean, on that one? I'm kind of rambling there, but what do you think? Well, yes, that's fine. One thing that I would also add and to to kind of touch on is why would somebody want to use player facing if the system is not inherent to it, or is that a, a turnoff for some? Why? And why is what is the benefit? And I would say that some would say that it has to do with unloading certain things from the game master and you put it on the players and they do that. And it's a benefit that way so that the, you know, I think Troy might've mentioned during Cypher speak, you know, it frees up the, the brain power. Even Jared mentions that, right? Frees up the brain power to be able to come up with creativity and different things other than having to worry about the math and looking up in charts and all these and things and ons on and on. So as a game master, then, if that is a, if, um, one of the reasons I do like it is that periodically, I like to move my games quickly, um, having as minimal slow down spots as I can get to. And one of the things that def, that, well, in my head anyway, that slows the flow of the game down, if I don't grasp it really quickly, is the DM die roll perspective. I want to be able to roll those dice and roll them quickly, get my results, and move on. So I think... On Brett's personal journey <laughs> as to why I like hey, these things. I have a question for you, Brett. Sure, go ahead. Have you ever taken a sheet and then you just make a bunch of rolls and record them on your sheet? And then when it comes around, you just look at the sheet and go, eh. You reference the number, cross it off. I have never done that. A friend of mine did that. He actually, back in like the 80s and early 90s, he wrote a computer program that just spit out random numbers so that when he would have incredibly high level wizards in AD&D he would have sheets of like these this this sheet this stack of 12 sheets double sided was all 66 die rolls this was all d20s this was all magic missiles blah 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 he would do that for spells because it was faster than picking up a massive load of dice well, it's not even picking up loads of dice just do you don't have to make a roll you just look at the sheet oh yeah that's another way to do it it, it does Make the math go faster, right? Right. You just add. What is the modifier? Oh, I already rolled. Yeah. I just was wondering if anybody out there has tried that type of system. Although I know, I realize a lot of systems aren't straight D20 rolls. But nonetheless, say you just take, and you take a long sheet and just roll a bunch of D20s or make a computer program to have it spit out 50 D20 rolls to see what happens. And then you record those. And as combat goes, you just rattle it off. Yeah, you can either grab them in order or even you make it into a drop table. <laughs> yeah. If you true. wanted to. So I honestly, I think apart from the only real downside to this type of system, at least for me, is that I can see a couple of my, um, the, the folks I game with regularly may not like that style of game. They prefer a different, more traditional approach, which is fine. Um, there is some brain power that has to be spent in getting used to that as a game master. Like, Hey, I don't have any dice in my hands and players like, Oh, all the dice are always in your hands. There is an interesting thing. I, I found when even in gumshoe is that players have a tendency to pay really close attention to stuff when the dice are always in their hands. Um, again, there's not a lot of in the investigation in gumshoe. You don't always do a lot of die rolling, but when you're doing your general skills and such and combat and so on, um, when you are finally rolling the dice and they are in your and a lot of it is in in your in your space to spend the points or do what it is you've got to do, 
Uh, I found that players have a tendency to pay pretty close attention to what's going on because they, they're the ones that are going to be deciding their fate. So I would assume a similar thing happens in a cipher type system as well. Yes, I agree. Okay. So I guess I think the main, the main piece here, and I'm really glad that, um, Jared and, um, Ronin and a few others have pointed this out to us and either here or in other social media platforms. I mean, it, it's not fixing a problem. These other games aren't bad. Um, your traditional approach of, Hey, I roll, you roll, we roll, however it all works. There's just different ways to do it. And I think there are certain game systems, the style of play, like, like Sean says, if Sean just doesn't give a shit, he's like, Oh, everybody wants to play Power by Apocalypse. Fine. I'll play Dungeon World. Everyone wants to play Cypher. Fine. I'll play that. Everyone wants to play GURPS. Sure. I'll play GURPS. Not everybody's like that. There are some people who hate certain types of games. Um, but it's, it's the style of, it's the style of play that certain types of games are bringing out. And I think what's happening kind of like the, like the diceless games in Amber and other diceless systems that are out there. It's a style of play, and it may or may not be for everybody. You know, not everybody. Everyone I've talked to who's played Fiasco has had a great time playing Fiasco. But I do know a few people I've mentioned Fiasco to who said, oh, I, you know, this is kind of the premise, and this sounds kind of interesting. And I've had some folks that I've gamed with in the past say, eh, I don't know. That just doesn't seem that entertaining to me. You know, different strokes for different folks and all that stuff. So I think that's, uh, hmm. I think the way I like to game master and the way I like to work stories with my, with the table and stuff. I really think the, um, <clears throat> the player facing engine is perhaps may, maybe a more conducive way for me to game master the way I want to game master. And perhaps that's why I'm being drawn to those things, at least theoretically at this point. But Brett, are you talking about being drawn to it because you like that as a game master or is it because of the system? I'm trying to, I mean, I don't want to go around and round, but no, I think it's because is it be- it's is just- it regardless of the system, you would rather try to do do that if possible. No, um, hmm, good question. Question. I think I almost want to say, regardless of the system, I want to try to put more more of the critical die rolls in my players' hands. And then I say why? Because I th- I believe that one I it's I think there's more. It creates more dramatic tension for whatever reason. People seem to be more. And I kind of mentioned this. I didn't kind of. I did mention this at the beginning. My players, the ones that I engage with most often, are really like super excited when that happens. Um, either they win, lose, or draw based on their own hand. I think that seems to draw a lot there. And then I get to <clears throat> when they've failed, much like a, a dungeon world type of perspective. Then it's easier for me then to see a bad die roll, whatever uh, is bad, like a six minus or a or even a failure in a D&D type of setting, say, well, you know what? I'm the game master here. We could let you succeed, but you're going to break your ankle, jumping across a cliff, jumping across the chasm. All right, fine, fuck it, I'll do that. I'll, I'll jump and I'll have a busted leg. Okay, you break your ankle, jumping across the, the chasm. Um, <clears throat> that is, again, that's more dungeon worldly than D&D-ish, but that type of play is more entertaining to me. And using those components, regardless of the game system, Seems fun to me. Excellent. I think we've covered it, eh, Brett? I think so. We can probably move on. Excellent. Very much. Everybody, write in. Leave us voicemail. Write in email. Tell us what your thoughts are of of what we just talked about. Good, bad, or indifferent. Let's get into die roll. 
Die roll, two to four miscellaneous points of gaming and geekery we want to bring to you uh, and inspiration. Brett has a couple. I have one. We have a couple from listeners. Brett. All right. So there was a um, little link here in the show notes to a, there's a society of all women, uh, there's an all women global exploration society in the twenties, um, which is just really cool to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you run time period pieces for like call Cthulhu or any historical components, when you learn that, you know, Hey, there, you know, back in 1923, Marguerite Harrison, um, sailed from New York to Constantinople. She was 44 and going off on this, you know, quote unquote, crazy thing. And it's really neat. It's this kind of this whole group of intrepid 20s women breaking that social norm and doing some really cool stuff. They were, you know, excluded from the men's only explorers club. So they kind of said, fuck all that. We'll make our own, which is pretty damn cool. So again, link in the show notes for that. And speaking of um, just things that are interesting, I've heard about this before and somebody had posted it up on one of the G plus feeds I follow. It's about the Coral Castle in Florida. It's a link to the wiki article, which is pretty entertaining. Um, there was a, uh, there's this Latvian, Latvian American eccentric named Edward lead, uh, uh, lead Scalini, lead Scalin, I believe is his name. It's uh, located in leisure city, uh, Florida. It's this bizarre, um, limestone structure that this guy made all by himself. Um, there were, I, I remember seeing, um, different, uh, like it was it aliens that helped him do it type of craziness. Is it some weird occult thing? Supposedly, he claimed that he had a uh, anti-gravity powers to be able to move this stuff or per- perpetual motion machines and so on. It's just really interesting that he he moved all of these bizarre rocks, these huge line t- limestone structures, some of them weighing many tons. Um, so it's just, again, it's one of those weird little crazy things that happens. And uh, it, it, I, I read that stuff and I think, hey, there's a plot. There's a story right there for your, for your next campaign. So anyway, there you go. John, over to you, sir. D&D 5e spells and spell books. View and read up on the spells. Create and save your own spell book and toggle all your prepared spells. You can even keep track of your spell slots. It's an online tool. Link in the show notes. Very resourceful if you need something for D&D 5e spellcasters. You know, I'd heard that they were going to be reprinting the uh, the cards, the spell cards from, I can't remember who does it. It's not. Whiz kids or somebody who's making the spell cards for 5e heard they're going to be reprinting them in like larger sets, like with all the spells type of thing. Have you heard anything about that? Not sure. I have the one for wizard. It's big. Lots of cards. Okay. I'll have to check into that. All right. Very cool. Oh, we do have a couple from listeners. Uh, Andy Hall shared, shared a link to the remains of English's uh, English living dead. So <laughs> I love this stuff. It's in uh, Yorkshire. Uh, scientists uncovered medieval remains of the first English vampires. Apparently, they, um, the medieval ancestors in this area were terrified of the living dead. And uh, I think they deliberately mutilated, decapitated, and burned bodies and then buried them in this grave outside of Yorkshire, which is just awesome. And uh, Azrael Rocha sent us a link to a color-coded reference sheet for cinnamon, synonyms. Synonyms color-coded reference sheet for synonyms for the word said. So, um, often, you know, you're, you're reading that novel or whatever. Brett said, Sean said, this person said. It's just a color-coded um, section there to what they, how they say different things. 
and so on. So it just it's another great uh, thesaurus type use, which is awesome because as game masters, um, while I'm sitting here tripping over my own tongue this evening, it's better to uh, <laughs> get a couple of these and put them in your vocabulary stable. I thought it was pretty cool based on color. You can look at uh, how something is said in a negative context or something excitable. It's very nice. Anyways. I think we're about up, man. I think that is it. So, Brett, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week I'm thinking about, we've ta- a couple of people have asked us about session zeros, and I've talked about how I've had a few session zeros, and I know you've done the same thing. So I was thinking we might go through that. Or I may um, jump over to um, doing something a little different and going over to, well, not a little different, but going back to our uh, player series and grab onto one of those. So it's going to be one of those two. I'm leaning towards the, um, towards the session zero perspective, though, so we may do that. Excellent. Well, just remember, folks, friends help you move. Real friends help you move bodies. Thanks, Stefan Dragonspawn, for correcting us on that one. <laughs> Very true. Otherwise, this is your host, Sean. <laughs> I'm Brett. Good night and good game and all. This episode of Gaming ABS brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest DeGary, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Jefferson, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Steele, Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Jason Blaylock, Remy Bellado, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, Wayne Hunfleet, James Carpio, Not Caprio, Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Corey Johnston, Eric Tankar, Brandon Barnes, Mark Tasaka, Brett Pazinski, Tim Shorts, Dan LaValle, C.W. Mellencamp, Victor Wyatt, Craig Huber, Eli Kurtz, Lost Sailor, Graham Miner, Todd McGowan, Roger Bryce of Misdirected Mark Productions, Old School DM, Jason, Christopher Gray, Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, Stefan Dragonspawn, Evan Harrison Cass, Finn Elf, Ray Otis, Merkel Froelich, Eileen Barnes, Tony Baker, Jared Rosher, Jared Lytle, Todd Crapper, Michael Parker, Jim Fitzpatrick, Michael Drescher, With Static, and Alexander Auerbach. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you could support the show for an entire month. Visit GamingNBS.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. This This has been a Litterbox Litterbox Studio Studio production. production.